Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here at the City Club. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, author, consultant, and special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, Dan Coyle. He's here to talk about his latest book, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. When it comes to improving a workplace or turning around a company, we all know that while strategy might be important, as Peter Drucker is thought to have said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. But what exactly is workplace culture? We can feel a workplace with a good culture, and we can definitely sense when the culture isn't quite right, but the specific qualities of a culture of high performance aren't exactly self-evident. And when, when a workplace culture is finely tuned, it can make that high performance seem almost frictionless and effortless. It's not, though, and that's where Dan Coyle's book comes in. Dan Coyle argues that creating a great workplace culture is not limited to a few lucky leaders who happen to know the secret or innovative organizations. On the contrary, it can be taught and learned by anyone. Dan Coyle describes himself as a journalist focused on the science behind high performance in groups and individuals. His latest book, The Culture Code, shares practices learned from eight of the world's most successful groups, including a military unit, professional sports team, and even a band of jewel thieves. In it, seriously. <laughs> Um, in addition to The Culture Code, Mr. Coyle is a New York Times bestselling author of several other books, including The Talent Code, a Shaker Heights resident. He is also a contributing editor for Outside Magazine and works as a special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, and I'm hopeful that he'll share some of that with us. Mr. Coyle holds a bachelor's degree from the University of Notre Dame and a master's in journalism from the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern University. Ladies and, ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Dan Coyle. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hello, City Club. Hello, friends. Hi, Jen. It's fun to be. It's kind of poetic to be here with you because, you know, we're here to talk about successful groups. We're here to talk about culture in a place that does exactly that uh, since 1912. It's pretty incredible and, and appreciated by all of us what, what happens here, Dan, and you and your team. So let me tell you how I'd like to spend our time together here. Let's divide it up into three chunks. Number one, I want to talk about an idea, like a mental model for thinking about culture. Number two, I want to talk about some habits, some ideas from other groups that you can steal and use maybe tomorrow. And then for part three, we'll open it up for more of a conversation. So let me start by asking you to do, can we do a little experiment here? Take a second, close your eyes, and think about the best, most cohesive group that you've ever been a part of in your life. Maybe it was a sports team, maybe theater, maybe family, maybe business. Don't think about what you did. Don't think about who you're with. Think about the feeling of being in the room with those people, that electric feeling of excitement, that feeling of connection, that feeling of not caring who gets credit. So everybody's got something, right? OK, you can open your eyes. The, uh, everybody's got something. We've all had that experience. Now let me ask you a question. 
That feeling feels like magic, but it's not magic. It can be measured. What's that feeling worth? If it could be measured in performance or creativity or productivity, what's it worth if you could measure that feeling, the impact of that feeling? And I'm asking you that question because I know the answer. <laughs> All right, there was a Harvard study, 200 matched pair businesses, businesses that were like fraternal twins, same industry, same business, same size. They were different in one factor. One of the pair had a strong culture and one had a weak culture. And they tracked everything about them. They tracked stock price, they tracked net revenue, they tracked productivity performance. In net revenue, what that strong culture is worth was 756%, which nicely frames why we're here. Culture does eat strategy for lunch, right? Culture isn't just some nice feel-good extra thing. Culture is performance. Culture is literally when people add up to more. They add up to more performance. They add up to more productivity, more creativity. And the question for us today is, as we explore this space is, what if we could control that? Like, what if we could control that space and know if we're going up or down, getting closer? Because right now, you're somewhere in that space. You're in a, all of us are in a group. We're in groups here. There's some groups in education, some groups military, some groups business, some groups startup. And all of you are somewhere in this space. And if you pull the camera back, like we're gonna, the t this moment we're in is really interesting. It used to be that success, to be a successful group, you had to basically have a really good process and execute on it. it. Life was kind of a systems contest. Whoever built the best system would do really well in the old days. Those days are gone. Like the easy problems have been solved. We live in an age of the continuous next. You never get to the finish line. You're always evolving. The landscapes are ambiguous. It's impossible to have a process and just do the same thing over and over and over and over again and be successful. How do you adapt? How do you attract the best talent and keep it there? And how do you actively manage your culture? So I want to explore this space between 0 and 756 with you. And I want to do that with a story. And that story is about me. So when I was eight, I was obsessed with a question. The question was really simple. How do I get really, 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 really good at baseball? Good enough to play for, I thoughtfully narrowed it down to two teams. The St. Louis Cardinals, because they won all the time, or the Cleveland Indians, because they never won. <laughs> I quickly ran into an obstacle. Actually, two obstacles. Obstacle number one, I was growing up in Alaska. There's never been a big leaguer from Alaska. Obstacle number two, when I got to high school, I was being struck out by kids who had grown up in Alaska. So I had this fork in the road. I decided if I couldn't be the best, I would study the best. And I became a, a journalist in the science of performance. I moved to Cleveland, married a, married a Cleveland girl. Hi, Jen. And one afternoon, I wrote a book about talent. I wrote a book about how people get good at stuff. And one afternoon, my phone rang, and it was the Cleveland Indians. They finally called. <laughs> They're a small market team, as you know. They're trying to get more. They're trying to add up to more, right? They're, and one thing led to another. They had read my talent book. One thing led to another. I took a job as a, as a consultant. And around that time, six years ago, um, something else happened that I take zero credit for. But Cleveland started getting better and better and better and better. The Indians, better and better. Did you know that for the last six years, Cleveland Indians have the best record in the American League and have spent $400 million less than the Yankees or the Red Sox? <laughs> Like, we're adding up to more. We're adding, we're more in that 756. We're, we're adding up to more. It's incredible, right? But it's not the numbers that really you remember. It's not, it's not always the numbers. It's the feeling. The feeling that you get, I don't know, maybe you did game seven. Maybe with two out in the bottom of the eighth. Oops. 
Let's try it again. We're going to play that on a loop for the remainder of the presentation. <laughs> So that feeling, like being on the front row of that transformation, sent me on a journey. I went around the world and looked at the groups in the top 1% of their domain, groups like Pixar, Navy SEAL Team 6, San Antonio Spurs, IDO, Zappos, and yes, a gang of jewel thieves, and looking at the patterns that they share. Before we get into that, though, we need to start where we're at. When I say the word culture, a certain mental model comes into your head, right? Culture, when you say culture, there's a certain set of associations you have. And the normal story we have with culture, the traditional intuitive instinctive story, is culture is like the DNA of a group. It's like its personality. And it's made up of all these different things. What's it made of? Well, it's made of voice and vision and values and integrity and trust and teamwork and leadership and engagement and cohesion and mission and honesty and purpose. It's made up of all this stuff, right? It's made up of so many different things. And all these things are basically true, but the problem with thinking about culture in that way is that that's a terrible tool. It's not useful. If you come to me and say, Dan, our culture really stinks, and I go, I've got the solution. All you need to do is work on your values, your vision, your integrity, your trust, your teamwork, your leadership, your engagement, your cohesion, your mission, your honesty, your purpose. Like, that's not me. I'm not useful. It's a bad tool. It's a bad tool. So I want to explore a different way of thinking about it because it's ironic. Culture is the most important thing you do, and yet our way of thinking about it is almost at kindergarten level. It's mushy. That's why conversations about culture are so mushy all the time. So I want to give you a different non-mushy way to think about it. And I want to start by introducing you to the team. Of all the teams that I met, this is the team that I, is my favorite, I fell in love with. And does anybody know what a murmuration is? So when a group of starlings gets together and forms this phenomenally intelligent flock that can solve problems in real time, that can move around and evade predators. It is an absolutely beautiful sight to see. They flow through the air. They solve problems in real time. And when you watch that happen, and I recommend Googling it, when you watch that happen, it's absolutely sensational because you, there are three things that are going on. The first thing that's going on is that they're staying incredibly connected, incredibly connected. There's not groups of starlings flitting off into meetings of three or four. They're in, right? They're in. Secondly, look how information flows in that group. Information flows from one end of the flock to the other side in a heartbeat. There's no friction. The information is completely flowing. Thirdly, look how they handle direction. They're able to determine exactly where to go, exactly where to go. And watching them move is like watching a SEAL team on a mission. Watching them move is like watching Pixar make a movie. Watching them move is like you were in the group when you closed your eyes and thought about it five minutes ago. And the lesson of this is that culture is not about what you say. It's about what you do. Culture is not about words. It's about behaviors. And there's three behaviors, three behaviors that determine the success or failure of any group, of any culture. Number one, building safety. How do we stay connected as humans? We send signals, behaviors of safety, connection. We share a future. I'm invested in your success. Behavior number two, sharing vulnerability. How do, we, how do we make sure that information flows in a group? We have to share risk. We have to share vulnerability. 
Behavior number three, establishing purpose. How do we determine direction? We do that by establishing a really, really clear purpose. And these things are related. Safety and vulnerability operate in a feedback loop. The safer you feel with the group, the more open you can be. The more open you are, the safer you feel. This is why all culture tends to move. Cultures aren't static. They're moving all the time. So that's it. These three behaviors are it. That's the idea I want to share with you. Forget about talking. Focus on behaviors. And this is kind of a lens to look at your own leadership skills. It's also a lens to examine cultures that fail or succeed. Why have the Indians been successful lately? I'd say it has something to do with that spiral. Why is the Trump White House so smooth running? <laughs> I made that joke in Oklahoma last week. It did, not, <laughs> it did not get the same laugh. And this isn't the only spiral that exists. There's another one called fear, obedience, and authority, which works. Fear works for simple problems over the short term. But in the landscape of continual next in which we live, this way of thinking about culture, I think, is more powerful and effective. So that's the idea. So let's get into the habits. So how do we do that? Habit number one, zero tolerance for brilliant jerks. <laughs> kind of interesting, because these groups that I was visiting were brilliant, no question. But they had zero tolerance. In fact, the San Antonio Spurs, most successful sporting franchise in the last 25 years in America, on their scouting report, they have a single line with a box next to it. And they measure everything about a player. They measure how high they can jump. They measure how high accurately they can shoot. And on every player, there's this line with a box. And the line says, not a spur. And if that box is checked, they will not draft that player, no matter how good they are. So why is that? So I want to explore that with you. There was, a, there was actually a guy named Peter Skillman who got obsessed with this question. Peter Skillman was an engineer. And he devised a contest to explore this. And the contest was really simple. Who can build the tallest tower with the following materials? 20 pieces of raw spaghetti a yard of tape, and a single standard-sized marshmallow. Tallest tower wins, 18 minutes to go. But the interesting part that he did was that he picked different types of groups of four to do this contest. He picked groups of CEOs. He picked groups of lawyers, groups of MBA students, and groups of kindergartners. I'm not sure why I went here for the kindergartners. <laughs> groups of kindergartners. Ready, set, go. And all the adult groups start exactly the same way. They talk. They talk. And somebody has an idea. And then other people improve on that idea. And then they divide up into roles. And they start to build. And it's, it looks beautiful. It looks smart. It looks really, really cooperative and intelligent. The kindergartners don't do that. They eat all the marshmallows, except for one. And they get all jacked up. They start jamming stuff together in a way that is totally chaotic. And if you had to bet your salary on which group wins, most of us would bet on one of the adult groups. Because that is the way our mental model of group performance works. We focus on what we can see. And when we see intelligent, verbal, smooth behavior, we assume it's going to add up into good performance. And when we see total sugared up chaos, we assume it's going to add up into bad. So let's see how that bet turned out. Here's the group performance in this all the time. If you bet, the blue is the, the MBAs. If you bet on the MBAs, you did not do well. If you bet on the lawyers, you did slightly better, 14 inches. If you bet on the CEOs, you did slightly better. But all of them lose to the kindergartners every single time. And when you see this, it looks like an optical illusion. I did this at Google recently. It doesn't seem like it makes sense. But the reason that it's true is that our mental model of group performance is, is wrong. It leaves out the two most important factors, status management and safety. The adult groups look like they're cooperating, but in fact, they're doing what humans have done for millions of years whenever we're put in a group, navigating our status with each other. Who's in charge? Is it OK to say that? 
there's a little whisper in the back of our head, right? That slows down ideation, slows down creativity, slows down feedback. The kindergartners win because nobody cares who's the CEO of Spaghetti Incorporated. <laughs> they just do stuff. And what better way to build together than to do things and have the tower fall over? What better feedback is that than to work shoulder to shoulder and fix it together? They're not, they don't win because they're smarter. They win because they're safer. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It matters how safe you are. And safety in human groups is delivered through something called belonging cues. And belonging cues are really short, simple signals that send a very clear message. I see you. We share a future. I'm invested in your success. The guy who was best at it that I visited was Coach Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs which is an interesting guy. You guys know who Greg Popovich is. He's, he's the most successful sports coach in America over his lifetime. And it's made more interesting because uh, he's, he's, he's 184 years old and he's really cranky. He's really, really cranky. He yells at his players. The other day he called timeout four seconds into a game. <laughs> like, who does that, right? And I went to visit on the day after they had lost a game. So I'm thinking, this is great. I'm there at the perfect time to watch how he does this. And what happened? He walked out onto the court. He went straight over to the player who had missed the big shot the night before, put his hand on his shoulder, and asked about the dinner that Popovich had arranged for the player the night before and the bottle of wine that Popovich had ordered for the player the night before. The Spurs eat together more often than most families. At the end of the year, each coach gets an album with the names of the places they've eaten together, the menus, and the labels of the wines they've enjoyed together. Then it's time to watch film, and I think, okay, this is where Popovich is going to go off. This is where he's going to turn pink. And the film starts to play. Players are sitting in a little theater, and the film starts to play. And what starts to play is a documentary on the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act. And he starts to ask the players, what would you have done? What did your parents do? Tell me. He's a fire hose of belonging cues. He's sending belonging cues all the time. So it's not how smart you are. It's how safe you are. So how do we bring that into action? Here's a few ideas for action. One is to send the two-line email. This is an idea from Laszlo Bach, who used to work at Human Relations in Google. Two-line email says the following things. Tell me one thing you want me to keep doing and one thing you want me to stop doing. Short email, big signal. Number two, obey the 34 times rule. 34 times rule is based on some research that shows if you give a request digitally and in person, you are 34 times more likely to get a yes if you ask in person. And we all know face-to-face -face is better. It's a lot better. And finally, use the open face. This was taught to me by a Navy SEAL commander. He said, your face is like a door. It's got two settings. It can be closed. And we know what that looks like. That's eyebrow down. I'm thinking. I'm, I'm, I'm really focused inwardly now. Or it can be up. It can be open like a door. This is your frontalis muscle. And as a leader, I would argue it's probably the most important muscle in your body because it's how we radiate excitement, interest, energy. So that's number one. Let's look at habit number two, sharing weakness. When I visited these places, they were really high-performing places, right? So I was really surprised. I kept having the same interaction. I had it with Ed Catmull, who runs Pixar. We're walking around this building. It is the most beautiful building I've ever been in. And I say, Ed, this is the coolest building I've ever been in. And he says, he turns, stops, shoulder to shoulder, eye to eye, and says, actually, this building was a huge mistake. Really? And he said, yeah, huge mistake. We made the hallways too narrow. We need people to bump into each other here and stop and talk. And they're so narrow, people just go right past. We put the atrium in the wrong spot. We put the lunchroom in the wrong spot. He lists all these things. But then he says, the biggest mistake that we made was we made all these mistakes. And we spent millions. And we didn't even realize that we were making them. I mean, it was stunning. 
When you compliment most leaders on their cool building, most of them say thanks. He's doing something else here. And then I met Dave Cooper. Dave Cooper trained the troops that got bin Laden. And during our breakfast, he said, you know what the four most important words a leader can say are? He said, I screwed that up. That's interesting, right? So let's explore that. What are they doing? They're sending a real signal with their behaviors. I want to explore that with a little experiment. Can we do a quick experiment here? All right, we're going to divide the room into two. You guys are A, and you guys are B. And if you're listening on the radio, or on the live stream, if you are to the west of the Cuyahoga River, you're A. And if you're to the east of the Cuyahoga River, you're B. And if you're by yourself, you can just, you need a partner for this drill. So everyone pick a partner. And if you are on A side, there'll be two questions that appear. Pick one question from the column, and then ask it to your partner, and they'll answer it. And then they'll ask it back to you, and you answer it. Does that make sense? Just play tennis with that question, volley it back and forth. And you only have one minute. It's just a one-minute experiment. So 30 seconds each. We're going really fast. So there's A's questions, and there's B's questions. The A questions are, describe the last pet you owned, and what was your high school like? The B questions are, when did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? Second question is, is there something you've always dreamed of doing? Why haven't you done it? So to repeat the questions, question A, describe the last pet you owned. What was your high school like? If you're in group B, when did you last sing to yourself or to someone else? Is there something you've always dreamed of doing? Why haven't you done it? All right, 30 more seconds, 30 more seconds. Ten seconds. Five, four, three, two, one. Do I get to ring the gong, Dan, to bring everyone back? All right. Well done. Well done. Well done. It's really interesting to sit back and watch this. This is called the experimental generation of interpersonal closeness. And what's interesting is, do you know what a sociometer is? It's a, it's a card you wear on your neck, and it captures the energy of a social interaction. It captures the energy in your voice. It captures whether you're face to face. It can capture gesture. So it gives you a signature of the social interaction. And the social interactions on each side of the room is, were very different. A, you guys started up right away. It was very easy. You didn't turn toward each other very much. It got pretty loud. It didn't get crazy loud. This group started slower, but, but it was much more it was much louder over here, for one. And it kept getting louder. And this was like the Italian family reunion side of the, side of the room. It was very, a lot more gesture, a lot more laughter. And the question is, why? Why would it be so different from each side? What's the difference between column A and column B? What's A? What is A asking you? Descriptive, pretty descriptive. What's B? A little more, a little emotional, a little more. There's a, word, there's a word vulnerability, right? There's a moment in B. It's, it's not a big moment, but it's a really important moment. Like, if I'm in A, describe the last pet you owned. I got that. <laughs> I got that. I can do that and maintain my status all day long. Elwood, 15 pounds, could do the dancey thing and back in reverse. <laughs> I got that. Is there something you've always dreamed of doing? Why haven't you done it? 
screw that. I want to tell you about Elwood. <laughs> Elwood was awesome, right? There's a moment in B, and that moment is really powerful because what's interesting, this is the strange part, if we were to give you guys all a test right now where you'd, use your, you'd team up with your partner to solve a challenge, you do a puzzle, B would outperform A. You'd be closer, you'd be more trusting, you'd be more cohesive, you'd be, have better vibe together, which is fascinating. Because the normal way that we think about trust is, I've got to build up trust before I'm vulnerable. But we've got it exactly backwards. Moments of vulnerability, when shared, are what create trust, cohesion, cooperation. That moment of vulnerability, it's called a vulnerability loop. And organizations that are successful operationalize them. They turn them into a habit, almost like a physical workout. The best at it are the Navy SEALs. After every mission, whether it's a real mission or a, or, a, or a rehearsal, they will walk through what's called an AAR, a real simple, difficult meeting where they talk about what went wrong, what went right, and what are we gonna do differently next time. It's a hard meeting. It's really vulnerable. It's really powerful. So how do we bring that into action? I think the first one, use AARs. It's one of the simplest, most powerful things you can do. It's a short meeting, but it's amazingly powerful for building a mental model. Vulnerability isn't just about your heart, it's about your brain. Secondly, aim for warm candor and avoid brutal honesty. There's a tendency when you have these conversations, there's a certain kind of person, it's usually a man, who gets excited and says, I'm gonna be brutally honest with you. <laughs> they always say the same thing. Better to aim for warm candor. Warm candor delivers two signals at once. Connection and candor. Connection with truth, together. Third, when listening, use the magic phrase. As, as leaders in this room, you guys are all often, people will bring questions to you. And it's very tempting when someone asks you a question to say, to give them the answer, to try to get, add value to the conversation. But what I've seen skilled leaders do is resist that temptation and simply say, tell me more. The question they're bringing is just the surface. Surface the tension that's underneath. So that's number two. That's the second habit, share weakness, which brings us to the third habit, using corny mantras. If you were to visit some of these high-performing groups, you'd kind of expect, as I did, I think, that their purpose would be kind of in their heart. They wouldn't have to talk about it. A Navy SEAL knows what it means to be a Navy SEAL. They don't have to tell you about it. You would not be more wrong. Places in these groups talk about this stuff all the time, especially the Navy SEALs. They always talk about themselves as the quiet professionals. They cannot shut up about how quiet they are. <laughs> talk about it all the time. So why is that? Why do, what is happening there? We think of purpose as something in your gut or in your heart. What's happening in those places? So I want to explore that with a, a, a quick story. Like Any culture, any group can succeed when the waters are calm, but when there's a storm is when cultures are really, really tested. And there's never been a storm like the one that hit Johnson & Johnson in 1982 with the Tylenol poisonings. Remember that? Out of the blue, right? Someone poisons jars of extra strength Tylenol. Eight people die in Chicago. So Johnson & Johnson gets a call that their product is a murder weapon. But what's extraordinary is what happens next. They respond like that group of starlings. They invented tamper-proof packaging and rolled it out in six weeks. It didn't exist before that. They were unbelievably open with the legal community and the public. They voluntarily pulled $100 million worth of product from the shelves against the advice of the F FBI. The FBI told them not to do it, and they pulled it anyway. How were they able to do that? Well, when you rewind the clock, what you find is a single executive there named James Burke 
who for the previous four years had created an intensive conversation around one question. What comes first? For Johnson & Johnson, a lot of things could come first. Shareholders could come first. The hospitals and doctors they work with could come first. But what they decided in those conversations, and decided it so clearly they carved it on the wall in granite, that what comes first is the health of the user of our product. The health of the user, they created extraordinary consensus around that fact, around that true north. So when the crisis came, they didn't have to have meetings to decide what to do. Should we pull $100 million worth of product from our shelves? It's a no-brainer. Should we invent tamper-proof packaging? It's a no-brainer. So the lesson of that is that purpose is not what's in your heart. It's what's in your windshield. And good leaders fill the windshield with vivid, emotional GPS that helps guide people toward what's important and how to solve problems. And the guy I met who was the best at it was Danny Meyer. Has anybody ever eaten at Union Square Cafe or Gramercy Tavern or even Shake Shack? Right? Danny Meyer, restaurateur. He wasn't always a big deal. In fact, he opened one restaurant in New York in 1988, and then he opened a second, and they both started to fail because he couldn't be at both places at the same time. He was the culture. When you looked at him, you knew how to act. You knew what was important. But when there was two restaurants, he couldn't do it. So he closed them for a weekend and took his staff off on a retreat and started building a mantra map, started building this. It's a really simple set of slogans, of mantras that define what True North is. True North, creating raves. Their True North is not serving food or making people happy. Creating raves. And then how do we do that? Well, read the guest. We find the yes. We plant like seeds in like gardens. This is my favorite. Mistakes are waves. Servers are surfers of those waves. Right? It's kind of corny. When you read that at first, you kind of have that reaction like, ah, oh, that can't work. Seems silly. And then I was eating breakfast with Danny Meyer in a restaurant about as big as this room. And from across the restaurant, someone dropped a tray of glasses. Made a huge smash, totally tranquil, beautiful restaurant, smash on the floor. And Danny Meyer stops talking to me and starts staring across the restaurant, staring at that interaction. And I asked, what, what are you looking for? And he said, one of two things is about to happen. Either this restaurant's going to come together and clean up that mess, and the energy level in this room is going to go up, or there's going to be a hint of blame, anger, resentment, and the energy level in the room is going to drop. If it goes up, I know the culture here is strong. If it goes down, I know the culture here is weak. Isn't that the greatest litmus test? Like, what happens when there's a problem? And in that moment, this corny list started to make more sense to me. Loving problems, athletic hospitality, mistakes are waves. Servers are surface of those waves. It's corny, and it's genius. So how do we bring that into our lives? Here's some ideas for action. Obey the 10 times rule. The 10 times rule says, you need to be 10 times as clear about your purpose as you think you need to be. It's based on some data. They did a survey of CEOs and asked them, what percentage of your people can name the top three priorities of your group? And the CEOs thought about it and confidently said, 64%. Then they surveyed the people, 2%. Right? We, we, we're bi we have bias here. We're, we overestimate how well we think people understand it. So over-communicate that purpose, just like James Burke did, just like Danny Meyer does. Second, build your mantra map. A real simple, it's a cool way to sort of co-create 
How do we, what problems do we face over and over again? What really is our true north? How can we distill that into a phrase, an image, a story? And finally, continually seek and share impactful stories. Stories are the greatest drug ever created. They change belief. They, they use emotion. They assign value. And in our organizations, I think often we treat stories as, as if they sort of happen on this serendipitous, free-range way, like, oh, I just found this nice story and I'll tell it. Smart organizations treat stories like the resource they are. They dig them out of the ground and they harvest them and they share them systematically. There's a, there's a kind of meeting that, that a lot of Silicon Valley companies do, which we've stolen and used for the Indians, sort of called like a cool stuff we do meeting. It's a short stand-up, but people just share around what they're working on, what excites them right now, something they heard about. It's a way of systematically locating those stories and bringing them out into the, into the surface. So that's, that's it. Three habits, one, one idea. And I guess we can kind of end where we started. You don't have to close your eyes again, but think about a group, not that you used to be belong to, but that you belong to now. Some group that you belong to now and the feeling of being in the room with those people. And think about one thing that you might try. One signal you might send, one behavior you might use to influence the group's culture. Because culture isn't something that just happens to you. It's something that you make happen. Thanks very much. That's Dan Coyle. He makes it sound so easy. Today at the City Club, we're enjoying a forum with Dan Coyle. He's a culture expert, special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, author of The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups, all of which he has just revealed to you. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our team will happily work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Director of Programming, Stephanie Jansky, and City Club in intern, Orimelo Orsanya. May we have our first question, please? I, I can start. Tell us about the Indians. What's going on over there? <laughs> no, it's, 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 uh, it is. I, I, I sort of got, got sucked into working for them because it was so much fun. The, uh, the first interactions I had with them were very, very sort of you know, lunches and small, and then it just quickly grew into something because I think in this town where everybody talks about, I think the Browns about 94% of the time, um, they're quietly a world-class world class organization because I think that they're really good at learning and they're really good at what it means to be a great teammate. And so um, I think it's been, it's been a, you know, I, I wrote the whole book while I was working with them and sort of in some ways they're kind of between every line of it, you know, that seeing that, seeing these ideas enacted in real time. You know, when you read a study about the importance of vulnerability, it's one thing, but then when you see Terry Francona do it with the team and have it work, or reading about resilience is one thing, but then when you see the whole pitching staff go down in 2016 and they make it to the World Series, maybe not despite, but maybe because of that a little bit, like it's so interesting to see how people respond to adversity. That's what great cultures do. When adversity happens, they respond strong, just like Johnson & Johnson did. So. That's been, the, that's been the fun part of that relationship. And it's moved from working on sort of the practice space to working more on the, with the coaches and the front office and culture. But um, no, they're an incredible organization. Sure, question. Uh, suggestions as to how to 
take your cultural suggestions and have them embedded in a complex organization with various layers of management and yeah. Uh, leadership. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting interesting point, because as you know, relationships don't scale, right? Relationships are relationships, and so you cannot impose a monoculture on a large organization. But what you can do is sort of create a space for a lot of microcultures to bloom, right? And that's that's what's important. One important tool to do that, I would say, is something called a culture capture. It's where you ask everybody in the organization to weigh in, in, in as deeply as they can on why it's good to work there and why it's hard to work there and what tensions they come against again and again, what challenges. They share that back and you identify it for themes. And the, main, the themes you really want to look at are the tensions. The main finding that I found in organizing this book and, and going to this research is that we tend to reflexively shy away from tensions and we should do the opposite. Great organizations turn toward the problem. One of the tensions might be innovation versus tradition. We have some people in our group that are very innovative. We have some people that are traditional. They're siloed. By having a culture capture and identifying that and naming it, look, we have to innovate through tradition. We innovate and we are traditional. You, when you carve out that conceptual space to have that conversation, you bring those people together and help them own the culture. So those two ideas, the culture capture and then the, a lot of microcultures. Hi, uh, I am fascinated with the Spurs. And so I just wanted to know, I've seen Pop yell at his players quite a bit. Yep. How do they handle you know, that kind of negativity? Obviously, you don't see the positive stuff. That's right. How do they deal with that? It's happening in a whole huge buffer zone of positivity. Have you ever had anyone in your life that could talk to you in that way? We often have this feeling like you can either be nice or you can be tough, right? as leaders. That's a false dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. If we think about the people in our lives who affect us the most, it's people who are both. And there's a lot of really interesting research to back that up. What, what great feedback is made of is when it is really warm and really candid together. Um, and the wine doesn't hurt either. He has a lot of wine with his players. Hi. Uh, I would love for you to talk a little bit about the jewel thief team uh. <laughs> and the culture that they were trying to create and how, in, how intentional it was. That sounds kind of suspicious that you would ask that question. So um, you people who are sitting at that table. No, it, it is pretty interesting. They're, they're a group called the Pink Panthers. And they originally were, became famous because they could do these massively quick, very well-coordinated strikes and get millions of dollars. They take 30 seconds. And everybody thought they must be teams of special forces the way they operate. And it turns out they're kind of the opposite. There are these sort of ex-lawyers and students and business people who would, they had been sort of dispossessed by the war in Serbia, and they had decided this is how we're going to get it back. And they would, they'll train for a month in the location where they're going to rob. And they're incredibly interdependent. It's not, they're, they're not functioning as a whole team. One team is the scout, and one team is the, the planner, and one guy is the person who goes and does it. So this intensive interdependence is what they really have got. And there's a great movie called Smash and Grab, if you're interested in this. And I think Leo DiCaprio just optioned the rights to tell the story in a fictional way. Hi, Dan. Hi, Ellie. <laughs> um, so what happens if um, you don't, members of the team aren't invested in finding a purpose, or they don't feel like they have stake in the success of the team? Right. Is there a way to remedy that, or do you think it just leads to failure. That's a, yeah, that's a really cool question. I, I think um, 
you know, and there's a, there's a few, there's a few different, there's not no one right answer for all this because all this sort of depends on the situation. But I think what it speaks to, I think the tension that your question speaks to is just how patient you have to be with all things cultural. How patient you have to be. There's so many times, I heard culture recently defined as it's when a small group of people find a better way to do things and people copy it. And that's kind of true. So you have to really give people exposure to that over and over again until they have the full opportunity. If then they're still putting their feet down, then you have to make a hard decision. But up to that point, I mean, people throw around sort of time frames for cultural change. You know, I've heard seven years, five years. It, it obviously depends, but it is so slow. But the interesting thing about that change is the shape of it. It's slow, 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 and then it's really fast. And everybody, we're, we're social animals. When a new norm is set, um, it, can, it can be addictive. It can be sort of almost like a virus that gets transmitted. So um, it's something to keep close track of, and, and it's, but that idea of patience, I think, is at the core of it. Hi. Hi. I'm uh, wondering how your work and your thought has uh, evolved with more and more discussion and attention on implicit bias, whether it be gender or race or yeah. other ways in which uh, uh, are more uh, uh, kind of implicitly influencing culture. Yeah, that's a really cool question. I think, it, I think it happens a lot of times in these areas of sort of, well, a few things. Dealing with these so-called millennials, like how do, we, how do we create a connection with that group? And in kind of areas of like getting people on the bus, getting onboarding, those sorts of questions, all in the area of safety. I mean, it's all in this big box of how do we make people feel safe when there are so many different ways we can feel them unsafe? And how do we get to know each other? And how do we move past just sort of mere diversity into real inclusion? I think there's a real art form, and I think it's very, you know, as you, as you, and you can see where organizations will blow apart if they get this wrong. So to me, it reinforces the fact that safety is bigger than the other two. It comes first. It's the platform on which all the other stuff happens. So you need to give it more attention, I think. That's how my thinking has evolved in that area, that you need to give it more attention than even we thought. It's the moment where your brain is built to say, I'm in or I'm out. And if you don't get that right and you're not sufficiently attuned to the people who you're having that conversation with, those biases can show up. Fortunately, we live in an age where there's a lot of really good bias research, and we can sort of, I think a lot of organizations have gotten a lot better at that. Hi, I'm Adi from Holden Forest and Gardens. Um, and I, this is similar to the last question, and I understand that the work that you've done might not address this specifically, but I do think that it's kind of an integral piece of it all. Um, I think that when people hear the word cohesion, they probably go straight to assimilation and think of it as you know, synonymous with cohesion. But can you talk about the benefit of and the necessity for uh, d diversity as opposed to sameness, especially in regards to especially in regards to setting um, that step of setting safety in a in a group. Yeah, that's great. You know, that, that 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 is a very cool question. No, there's a tendency we have when we when we hire and when we like people that are like us. Huge human bias. Well, we all have it. Um, and I think the most powerful concept to sort of address that is the idea of cognitive diversity and all the research around cognitive diversity where. We're so much smarter with a diverse group in the room than we are with a monoculture. And so it's not just something you want to do for moral reasons, though those are perfectly good moral reasons, but it makes you a lot smarter too as a group. So to actually see that, I think that that story around, and that around cognitive diversity is an incredibly powerful one to sort of share and spotlight and celebrate, either in 
you know, small organizations or big ones. Hi, my question's on uh, the not a spur box. Yeah. But I want to take it out of basketball because they've got a limited number of people that they're researching, and it's, I would think, relatively easy to get, get good cultural and uh, attitudinal information about potential players. But now let's talk about a manufacturing company because that's the world I live in. Uh, they've got people they're looking to hire, but these are people uh, so-called off the street that they don't know much about. Yep. How do they build their not a my company guy questions uh, right. and make them about the, the human and not about the skill set? Right. Oh, cool question. Um, to go back to the Spurs, they had, it's really actually, it's very similar to you because nobody's better at hiding their real self than like an 18-year-old who is potentially going to make millions of dollars. So it's very similar, and the, and the same response that they have is one that I would give you. Um, behavioral interviewing. Is that, is that a, a term that's familiar? The idea that you really want to focus when you do an interview, when you spend time with someone, it's not, it's not talk to me abstractly about what you value. It's tell, describe a time when you had a hardship. Describe a time when you ran into a brick wall. And, and you can tell by the responses there how real that is. So... That idea, and the military use behavioral interviewing, now it's something that a lot of sports teams use, and it's, it's, a, it's a more powerful way. And the other notion is, that I think a lot of organizations are coming around to, is like, let's have a little test period here. Like, let's test drive each other. Let's have a week, come, come, and, come and work, and let's see what it's like. Anybody can fake it for an interview. So actually have that test period where you're actually working together, work doing a project. I'm gonna take a question from Twitter. Um, there's been a lot of conversations taking place in the community regarding local leadership, economic development, and the culture of our community institutions. How would you describe the culture of the Cleveland community, and what advice would you offer our local leaders? Wow. Um, <laughs> no pressure. How would you describe it? I, I guess I wouldn't say culture. I would say cultures. It feels like there's several distinct you know, cultures here that haven't found a way necessarily to create that connection and that safety and that sense of, of overall belonging. I think there's a lot of little groups here. And the opportunity of a place like this is to create that space where you can connect and actually build relationships that go outside of this room. Um, so I, I, I think, I think it, it speaks to the opportunity and the challenge, that safety piece, which is at the very, very bottom of this. I don't think we're good at that as a city, necessarily. I don't think we're necessarily good at, at building bridges from these groups to other groups in ways that are authentic and long-lasting. So to me, that's, that's, the, that's the exciting challenge and the opportunity. Hi, thank you. Wonderful talk today, I've been enjoying it. Um, I have a question. If you have had uh, the opportunity to observe organizations that have done a good job of maintaining the idea of safety mm -hmm. um, during times of volatility or downsizing. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Here's a, here's a good one. How about a baseball team that has to cut people, right? Or trade people, or trade people. And it's interesting because the sort of the narrative around that, or even a, even a school that has to get rid of teachers and all the teachers are sort of scared, right? Budget cuts or whatever. That thing. And I think there's a, a bad narrative that people sometimes buy into that says, hey, we're all a family. We're all a family. That's not a great narrative because you don't fire your family. You don't cut your family. Well, maybe some people do. <laughs> Hi, Jen. <laughs> so that idea of a team is, I think, a more powerful one. And I think the social contract in this area, you cannot promise 
people that they'll be there forever. So I think what you can promise people is that you'll make them better. You might be here, and I've seen this work in sports context, education. you might stay a year, you might stay 20 years, you might stay a week, but every day, our promise to you is that we're gonna to try to make you better, which is, which is aligned with the world we live in, and it's a, it's, a, it's a realistic, authentic promise that you can make to each other that strengthens the culture in times of, in times of fear. And it, and it can explain the sort of difficult things because it's, it's hard to be in a group. It's hard to, you're navigating hard things. You're making hard choices. The idea that it is a, a big happy family all the time is a myth. And that's especially true at the top, top end. I went into this project thinking I'm gonna get to some place like Pixar. Pixar will just be magic. Everybody there will be walking on clouds. It'll be seashells and balloons. That is not true. That's not true. It's a different sort of thrill. It's the thrill of solving really hard problems with people you admire. But it's not like fun, 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 right? It's hard, it's hard. But it's the kind of hard that all of us have had in our life at one point where we did hard things with people we admire. And that's what great cultures do. You sort of um, already answered this, but would you say part of the reason more political movements do not succeed, for instance, the battle over immigration now is the people who are opposing Trump are just doing it to oppose Trump. They don't have a pathway they're following themselves. Yeah, I already answered that. Um, so I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's such a tribal, it's such a tri it's turned it very, very tribal. I think there's, there's an example from the Palestinian-Israel situation, where they have, a, have you heard of Seeds of Peace? You know, it's, they, they just get high school kids from both sides together, and they have summer camp. They don't do anything fancy. They don't do any political work. They don't do, they just go canoeing. And it works, and it works. So I think we underrate the value of moments like this, when you get on a little table and you break bread with people and you get to know them. That's where, that, where those connections can happen. And online is not that space. Dan, thanks for coming out today. Sorry about the rain. Can I borrow your phone? No, just the actual question. Um, you left out the entire epilogue. So as a father of three, that probably hit home the most. Um, have a terrific culture where I am now. But creating that culture and asking my children to, to be a part of that is really what kind of worked for me. Can you talk through some of that? Well, actually, there's some people here who are, who are, are part of that. Uh, what you're referring to is the epilogue. I coached a, a writing team. You know what Power of the Pen is? Any of you have middle school kids? Probably. So I coached Power of the Pen team at a, at a local Montessori school where our kids go to school. And Nathan and Ellie, who can stand up here, were on that team back when they were youngsters. Now, they're, now they are old. They're old people going to college in the fall. Um, but I was, I was in the depth of this research, so I said, well, I'm just going to try some of this stuff out with the team. Because in previous years, and you probably don't remember this, but I was, I was much more like, I'm the guy who knows stuff. Like, I'm a writer, I know stuff. Like, I can stand up there and tell them how to do it. And so I did that. I was kind of the sage on the stage. I told them to do it. And so for that year, I decided to kind of flip it. Kind of flip it. To be, I was pretty vulnerable. I brought in manuscripts of mine with stuff all crossed off and showed them how ugly and difficult it was to write, uh, write stuff and put them in charge of, of choosing stuff. We did a lot of around the table um, feedback sessions. Um, and it just, it just worked, quite, it was really fun. It was harder in some ways for me. I had to lead in a different way to really pay attention to what was going on. And it wasn't about what I knew. It was about how I was reacting in time and how I sort of reflected 
before each session. But it was really fun, and it was. And it, it turned out we had a, a really good team where people went very, very. They got all kinds of trophies and awards, and and it was. Uh, it was delightful. So, like these ideas, I think that's what's fun about these ideas is that they're not limited to the workspace or, or to the cubicle or anything like that. It's just sort of a human thing. Thanks for bringing that up. That's nice. It seems that to get an organization to follow your recommendations, shall I say, you need some buy-in from the top. Mm. Let me flip that and ask if you can share with us examples or techniques where junior level people see that the purpose, that the safety is not there, mm -hmm. want to do something about it, yeah. but you're in a family-owned business. How do you get through to the boss the changes need to be made? Yeah, yeah, what a cool question. How do you manage from the middle? How do you nudge up, right? And that's really, really difficult. Um, but there's one idea that I, would, that I would share that I've seen used successfully, which is be oblique. Be indirect. Be indirect. What you cannot do is go there and say, I have a better way of doing things. Do what I say. That doesn't work. But what does work sometimes is say, hey, let's take a field trip. Let's do an idea exchange with this outfit down the street and see what they notice. See what you notice. Put things in their windshield that, that make them pay attention to what the change that might take place. The shadow of the leader is massive, and it's very difficult. But by being indirect, I think it's, it's sort of the only path to really manage from the middle. Um, and the other thing is the power of story, I think, is really powerful in this, in this area, too. To think about capturing stories of things happening differently in the organization that embody the change that you want to see, and celebrating and sharing and analyzing and, and popping that story all over the windshield as something, hey, this is a better way to do things than what we have. This is a better way of being than we have. We'll take one final question from Twitter. Um, I noticed that many of the groups you highlight in the book are limited in gender and maybe other kinds of diversity. How can we build a culture without selecting for folks who are like us? Yeah, yeah, no, it's interesting. Um, yeah, some of the, some of the groups, uh, I have a natural interest in sort of sports and stuff like that, so I kind of went there with some of it. But it's not limited to gender. All these things, actually a lot of the leaders in this group lead in a way that is very kind of gender-free. They're the Navy SEALs who are saying, I screwed up. They're the people who are noticing small vulnerabilities and sharing small vulnerabilities in a way that we traditionally associate. So I don't link it to any specific, specific gender. I think these ideas work on, on a human level. Thanks very much. Yeah, right on. Appreciate it. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Dan Coyle, culture expert, special advisor to the Cleveland Indians, author of The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups. Mr. Coyle appears as part of our, um, as part of our Authors in Conversation series, supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all the residents of Cuyahoga County for their support through that public grant. Our community partner for our forum today is the Cleveland Leadership Center. We welcome guests at tables hosted by the Coyle family, friends of Dave Nash, and Holden Forest and Gardens. We thank all of you for joining us today. That brings us to the end of our forum. I should mention as well that Mr. Uh, Mr. Coyle's book sales is made possible uh, through our friends at, um, at a, a cultural exchange. How appropriate, it being about culture. Thank you, Mr. Coyle. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is now adjourned.
For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.